And now we'll get to our scripture reading. So if you would take out your Bibles or look up on the screen and follow along, we're going to be reading from the New American Standard, Romans chapter 1, beginning with verse 26 through chapter 2, verse 1. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit, To acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning once again. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. We are continuing in our series in the book of Romans, which we are calling The Reason for Grace. And I want to start by saying today that uh, it is really easy to preach heresy. It takes nothing to preach heresy. I think about some of the things I have preached over the years, reading, rereading my old sermon notes, and I can't believe I've said certain things I've said from the pulpit of all places. Now, um, having said that, I want to acknowledge the reality of process, that we are all in process, our minds are in process, we are hopefully growing more and more each day, each season. Uh, life is a journey, right? We're not born and then we arrive at exactly where we're going to be for the rest of our lives, but we're headed to a final destination. And uh, because of that, there is also the reality of the conflict of interest, that we have hidden motives, that we have uh, complexity and layers to us, that we have uh, very much reason to doubt our doubts, that not all of our doubts and questions and skeptical uh, sort of approach to things are sincere. That there's conveniences involved and paradox. And so um, all that to say, I think this whole topic that this passage uh, seems to be addressing uh, 
is kind of a political hot potato, if you will. It's what I would call a, a political third rail issue. If you touch it, you're going to get fried. Right? And so uh, I've been anxious uh, all week, but really for months, just thinking about the, not months, but whenever we decided we're going to do the, uh, the book of Romans, uh, just I was just very aware of these passages that Christine read, these verses that Christine read for us. And uh, I was so hoping somebody else would preach it. But here I am. And uh, I want to ask you to put yourself in my shoes. How would you feel if you had to be the one to preach these passages to this church? The breadth and spectrum of views on this topic at this church alone is uh, very broad. It's as broad as you can be. I have interviewed people. I've talked to many of you about this topic. And uh, y'all are everywhere. <laughs> really, you are. Um, and there's one person, me, speaking on behalf of this church today. And um, what I want to do is I want to try to be as biblical as I can be. I've done tons of research and homework and uh, i was telling somebody i can't remember the last time i've done this much homework for one sermon and i usually do a lot of homework for every sermons and so i did an extra amount of homework mostly out of my own anxiety and wanting to cover my own butt Uh, i think this whole topic of homosexuality which we're addressing today is really kind of the current sun It's the one that's nearest to us and we feel it. But it's often washing out all of these other stars. We can't see them. But, you know, sun is one of the smallest stars out there. There are far more brilliant stars that we can enjoy. Except that right now we're very close to the sun. And so I acknowledge that perspective. And I wonder how God who created the universe. I was just looking at this video again uh, last night about how we have... Uh, about a hundred billion galaxies in our universe that we know of. A hundred billion galaxies. And each galaxy has billions and billions and billions of stars. And this topic is just one little star. But right now we as a people, as a people of God are near to it and so we address it. Um, about three weeks ago I asked Chris, uh, our worship guy, For 50 minutes today. I don't know if I'm going to use all of it, but um, at first we started out with like two songs and me, and that was it because I really wanted the whole time. And then different things got added, and so here I'm at uh, 1235 still in my introduction. Uh, But I want to ask you if you would just kind of put away your uh, consciousness of time a little bit today. I'm aware of it. I'm staring at the clock the whole time I'm preaching. And so uh, you don't have to manage that. I'll manage it for you. If you have to leave at a certain time, go ahead and leave. But um, I'm planning to end around 12.20 today. Okay, so just stay with me. Um, hear me out to the end, I would ask as well. Uh, I'm going to take us on a similar journey that I went through in understanding this passage and coming to terms with my own uh, perspective on this at the moment, it's this is what I'm presenting today is my uh, thoughts du jour, and not much more because I don't know where I'll be on my journey in life. Um, three things I want to do: position, posture, and then application. 
Okay, position, posture, and application. First, we start with somebody's leaving already. I. What do I have to do to please you guys here? My goodness. <clears throat> position. I know I didn't finish my sermon last week and I sent it out to you over email in the loop. And so hopefully you have access to that. Let me do a quick review as part of my uh, entree into this first point position. We said last week that the refusal to worship or to give thanks is the very beginning of how everything goes wrong. Because God is our creator, and if we don't acknowledge that and relate to our most fundamental relationship, which is to our creator, he alone knows why, how, when, what, the whole thing, because he created us. And if we don't understand that, everything else gets messed up. And so when we choose to refuse to worship or give thanks to God, our creator, then we begin to engage in what I would call denial behavior. Things we have to do, what Paul calls evil deeds. We have to engage in denial behavior as a way to prove that we're not doing something wrong in the first place. So, if... um, Yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Let me go quickly through this. Okay, denial behavior... And if we're engaging in denial behavior, that begins to impair our judgment. And what that means is that uh, our foolish minds are already foolish, but it's becoming further darkened. That's another way to say that we are unconsciously foolish. We're dumb and we don't even know it. We lack the ability to know it. Right? It's what the scriptures would call a double sin. We're hewing out our own cisterns. We're filling it with our own water. And the cistern is leaking. So, uh, in this darkened state, as a way to save us, God gives us over. He abandons us to our own devices. That is, He stops the enabling. He stops preventing us from experiencing the full consequences of our actions. And we head down a path towards self-destruction and we hit rock bottom. And it's at rock bottom, right, that we experience grace for the first time. Grace becomes grace. It has an opportunity to be experienced by us as grace because we have nothing else, right? And so we begin to give thanks. We begin to worship. And so now we're back to where we should have been. And we begin to experience what Romans 12 calls the renewal of our minds. And we begin to discern the good and perfect will of God, our creator again. Because he alone knows what, how, when, when, how, all that about us. Right? You have number six over there. You see the word epithumia. That's the word that's used here in our passage. Epi means over. Thumia means desire. And so that's over desire. When you disproportionately desire something. So we're not worshiping God. We have this great vacuum. And out of sheer hunger, starvation, we start sucking everything into our core and it becomes our identity. We're over-desiring everything because we have to. Right? And it begins to destroy us. And so, um, that's the review from last week and you actually got more than you did a little bit last week. But here's... The first thing I want to say about 
this passage that was read for us today. What we understand from this passage is this, that sex is profoundly powerful and it's intricately connected to worship. And this is the strangest thing. I hate it when religious leaders talk about sex. I don't even like them saying the word sex because in my experience, why are religious people, especially leaders, so obsessed with controlling my relationship to sex? Why do they have no other thing to do? Go do something else, religious people, except manage my sexual life. Okay, it's, it's some sort of deal. Maybe it's a big deal. But why do you have to control my relationship to sex? Why don't you manage your own sex life well and let it end there? Why are you always trying to control my sex life? And I've always asked this question. Why is it sex that they're obsessed with? Have you ever thought about that? First Corinthians chapter 6 Verse 16 and following says this. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All, all other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. That passage that I just read can be a whole sermon on its own. It can be a whole sermon series. But one point I want to make here. You notice that Paul gives two categories for sins in this passage. There is the sexual sins, and then there's all other sins. He says, when you commit a sexual sin, that sin is against your own body. All other sins you commit, everything else, including murder, it's outside your body. And so here's one category of sins in which everything fits. And then we have this other category, sexual sexual sin. Now think about this. Why does sex get its own category? And there's only two of them. Because sex is profound. It is mysterious. It is powerful. And it's intimately, intricately, more than we can ever understand on this side of heaven, connected to worship. Your ability to say thanks to God is connected to sex. That's wild to me. That's fascinating to me. That's interesting. I just want to study that. What is that about? Why is it that way? I don't think religious leaders have done a great job of conveying this reality that sex is really intimately connected to worship and worship is intimately connected to sex. As far as our life here on earth, they're very connected I think they've done a horrible job of administrating that truth. I have. My colleagues have. The whole industry has. Historically, we have done a terrible job. But still true that sex gets its own category. 
There's something special about sex. And it has to do with worship. And when we stop worshiping God, one of the first things to go, one of the first things to begin to degenerate, one of the, t- the canary, the proverbial canary in the mind has to do with sex. Now, as an evangelical Christian, I wish this weren't true. Because this just fits right in with the reputation and stigma. and But it's, it's right here. It's all over scripture. And if I'm honest with myself, I have this suspicion that it might be true. I think part of what the problem is when we are reading this passage, being able to understand what Paul is trying to say, part of the problem is we don't understand this truth, that sex is a really, really, really big deal. It's not just about sex. It's about far deeper things than sex. Things that we can't begin to understand. We also don't understand this passage very well, I think, because we don't understand really uh, Paul's world, the world in which Paul was writing. The world that had been when Paul, as a Jew, was beginning to pen these words. I did a lot of historical research. It was a fascinating uh, several weeks of studying the sexual history of our planet. Um, if you look at my browsing history, it's just embarrassing. And uh, the books I've purchased and read, and it's just, I got I to gotta take care of that after this sermon. Uh, but I had to save it all because just in case I needed to go back. Uh, but he, let me point out just four things about the sexual context in which Paul was writing. Okay? First, homosexuality was not an orientation as we understand it today. There was no homosexuals. It wasn't like I have an orientation towards my own gender. That was never a real category, but it was just an activity. Until about 150 years ago. That's not very long. Think about that. Until about 150 years ago, homosexuality was not an orientation, but mostly an activity. Something that folks engaged in. But it's not part of their identity. It's not how they perceive themselves. For example, today... Today, you would never say, I have an orientation towards idol worship. I'm an idolater. I like to worship man-made objects. You see that little statue? I worship that. I bow down to it. I pray that. And I just have this inclination towards that. Imagine you thinking that. Do you know anybody that thinks that? But back then, that was a thing. Like people actually felt an inclination towards worshiping man-made objects. I'm not talking symbolically or metaphorically, literally. Like you carve out a God or you go to the marketplace and you purchase a God and you feel this attraction towards it. You want to bow down. You want to put your hope and salvation in there. You have a need. You have a situation, a circumstance. You have this inclination to go and pray to it. People had that back then. That was a thing. And so you see the scriptures addressed it. We don't have that 
orientation now. That's foreign. Well, same, same for back then. They didn't have a sexual orientation the way we think about it. It just didn't exist until about 150 years ago. Second statement about Paul's sexual context. The gods that existed that uh, ruled the world, all of history until Paul was writing, until actually just Judaism appeared on the scene, gods are highly and pervasively sexualized. You look at the history, sexual history of any people group, right? In Europe, in Asia, anywhere else we have records of, gods are sexualized. Gods are projections of our own sexual nature and desires and over-desires. Gods were not holy, that is set apart, separate, other, different than human beings. They were sort of just superhumans. They were stronger than us. They were physically bigger than us. They had different number of limbs. They had sometimes different number of heads. But they were not holy. They were unholy. They were created after our own image. And it is in this culture where gods are sexualized and perverse. And it is in this culture where God shows up, Yahweh shows up and says, no, sex is a metaphor. The gods do not engage in sex. In fact, there are no other gods. There is no sex in heaven. This is what Jesus taught. He said, you know, a, a religious ruler tried to trap him and he and they said to him, well, a brother, you know, has a wife and then that brother dies and then another brother marries that same wife because that's Jewish custom, right? And then that brother died. And in heaven, whose wife is she going to be? And Jesus just shakes his head and said, you guys are so dumb. There's no sex in heaven. Sex is a metaphor. I am your groom. You are all my bride. Do you understand? Sex doesn't exist. God is holy. I am holy. You and I are not going to have sex. Nobody's having sex because it's so diminished. It's such a small little glimpse into what you worshiping me for all of eternity is about. And he just thinks it's silly. Our God is holy. Third, homosexuality or homosexual practice was ubiquitous, accepted, practiced, and it was public. Can you imagine a um, world where that is so? That we... In our modern day world, we assign gender to ourselves, right? I'm a male and some of you are females and you're sitting amongst other males and other females, right? That's the way we understand it. But in that culture, sexuality had less to do with gender, but more about penetration. As somebody who was strong, as somebody who was dominating, you penetrated whatever object you so desired. Animate and inanimate objects. It was more about what was penetrating what rather than about gender. The age 
or the species or the kind of object being penetrated was not a real consideration, if you can imagine that. And it's in this culture, God shows up and he says, no, sex is an interaction between male, the gender male and the gender female. Prior to God revealing that truth, that wasn't true. It wasn't something that the human mind was able to comprehend and understand. We live in a Judeo-Christian world. This is the westernized world as we know it. Prior to that, that was not so. I was thinking about this. I thought, this is crazy. How can the world exist? I can't imagine that. Where gender isn't such a thing. Where homosexual practice is ubiquitous. That's weird. And then I was thinking about my own culture, the Korean people. Here's a little disclosure. When I was growing up, it was normal. The, the male was so honored and so valued in the patriarchal sort of Korean culture. Not so much now, but back when it was still a third world country. Uh, excuse me, a developing nation is the political term now. Um, the, the male was so valued, it was normal for any grown man to say to a kid, let me see your thing. And then to reach out and fondle it. That was normal. I remember growing up like that. Can you imagine that world? Ask any Korean person that is older than 39. And they will tell you, yes, absolutely, that is true. Was it considered fondling? Nope. Was it, was it looked down in any way? Nope. Was it ever something that was done only in private and under the cover of darkness and secrecy? Nope. Did it happen anywhere in public places? Yes. Like, as I'm telling this story, I have a memory of walking into a real estate broker's office with my mom and then having to take off my pants. I remember this, and it was normal. I remember a friend of mine, talk about another culture, who came back from doing missions work in Africa. And I don't remember now what country or what people group that was, but it was normal to have young boys sitting on men's shoulders and the man walking around all day with this young man on his shoulders is reaching up and fondling the young man. All day, publicly, out in the open, because the male is so valued. Can you imagine that? That was the world and more. That's called pederasty. When it was normal for men, especially wealthy men, to have lots and lots of young boys all around them. That was normal. That's the world in which Paul is writing. Lastly, women were considered property. They were peripheral and they were mostly valued for their labor as a labor force and for childbearing. This was the point of a woman. To be an object, to be on the sidelines, to be on guard just in case a man might need your services, and to bear children. It was, I mean, I think the world is misogynistic now. I really 
see it everywhere as a father of four daughters. I fear for my girls because of that. But it's way, 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 unimaginably better than it used to be. This is true. And it's in this culture, God says, no. All human beings, male and female, are created in God's image. The female is equal in value to the male. See, partly why, a big part of why homosexuality was so ubiquitous is because women were not worthy of romantic love, of pursuit, of continued monogamous sexual relationship. There are lots and lots and lots of stories coming out of China and the Philippines and countries in Europe that had to do with a man's romantic love and pursuit and even monogamous commitment to other men and little boys. But very few stories about men towards women. Because women were not deemed worthy of that kind of love and commitment. And it's in that culture, God says, women are created in my image. And by design, sex has been reserved, set apart, made holy for man and woman within the context of marriage to imitate the unconditional, protective, and permanent love of God himself. Imagine a world before Yahweh showed up, before the God of the Bible showed up. And if you read the scriptures now with these four truths about the historical context of sex and mind, you begin to see this. You see it everywhere in scripture. Do a study on all the gods that the Israelites fought against. You know all those good kings and bad kings and all the gods, they're always tearing down temples and you know they're tearing down uh, places of worship. All of those gods are highly, highly homosexual and sexualized in general. Prostitution, the act of sex, was integrated into the very practice of worship. You could find almost zero. You find almost no practice of worship that's not connected to sex in the ancient world. This is the world in which Paul is writing this letter. Especially in Rome. So here's the first question that I want to ask regarding position. What is the God-intended ideal that we are to strive for? Now, I really wrestle with asking this question because part, we're going to get to this later, but part of what Paul is talking about here is the general fallenness of our world. Our world is so complex and it is so messed up. And I, as a, a, I consider myself a, 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 a bridge maker. You know, I really have this evangelistic impulse in me. And I, I want to connect to the least, the last, and the lost. I want to connect most to those who feel peripheral and marginalized and who feel like the church has done no good for them. I really feel a sensitivity to that. I want to connect to that. So I don't want to ask this question. But in spite of the complexities 
And it's really complex. The science of sexuality, homosexuality is so complex. You know, I was just reading an article about this old man. He's like in his 60s and he went to the doctor because he was feeling some pain. Maybe some of you read this this week. For the first time he discovered he's a, he's a woman. But he has this very rare genetic condition having to do with his chromosomes. You know? And he thought his whole life he was, um, he was a man. But he discovered at the age of 60 something that he's a woman. Never knew. It's complex. There's no way to slice this pie cleanly. There's no way to do it. But even in this world, I can still ask the question, what is the original intended ideal that I am to strive for? And I believe this, that the ideal, God's ideal is heterosexual monogamy between man and woman in God-ordained marriage. And for those who are able to marry Living in this, according to this ideal, becomes the primary means of grace in one's life. This is what the church would call a sacrament. As a covenant church, we don't label marriage as a sacrament because not everybody does it or can do it. So I say it's sacramentish. A means of grace. But look at verse 32. And although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. This word, hearty approval, this is the term for public proclamation of acceptance and approval. And here's what I realize, that societal practice and administration of the sex of its members is primal in its indication of its relationship to God. Do you understand what I just said? Societal practice and administration of the sex of its members is primal, that is, the first, in its indication of its relationship to God. What society proclaims publicly proclaims the ideal for that society. What we make public represents the ideal for that society and what is our society proclaiming is our society proclaiming the validity of homosexuality or the ideal nature of homosexuality i thought about this i read about this and the answer is no what our society is doing is we are proclaiming the virtues of tolerance and plurality that is really our god tolerance and plurality But answering the question of posture, I mean, of position, I say, with our denomination, the Evangelical Covenant Church, with our church staff, and with the elders of this church, I publicly now and clearly proclaim the biblical ideal for life is sex and family life between men and women within the sanctity of marriage. And my role as a public servant of God, my public statement is the same. For me to, for me to have publicly declare, for me to publicly declare anything else is a forsaking of my duty as a public servant. Part of my job as a public minister of the gospel, I'm standing here. 
the only one on stage behind this pulpit. My job is to proclaim the ideal that God intends. Now, in proclaiming the ideal publicly, that is not denying the realities of the complexities of life or the softness of having a relationship with the diversity of humanity that is in my life. Do you understand what I just said? I have homosexuality in my family. It's part of my world. And I will relate to them the way I relate to them. But as a public servant, my public task is to declare the ideal. And as a church, our job as a Christian church of the Evangelical Covenant Church is to publicly declare, proclaim the ideal that is found, I believe, in Scripture, even in the context of our world. And certainly that is what Paul was doing when he was writing this letter to the church at Rome. Do you know that back in this ancient world in which Paul was writing, nobody had the capacity to read silently? Do you know this? This is one of those little factoids that if you had to read, you had to go to a reading room if you don't, for fear of disturbing others because the only way you knew how to read was to read out loud. You read with your mouth. And one of these things we can't fathom right now. Right? But they read out loud. And so this letter and all other letters were not ever read silently. The Bible was always read publicly. And for Paul to write this to the church at Rome, he is publicly declaring God's ideal. The second question regarding position is this. What is the public proclamation? How do we do that? Left to our own devices and natural degenerations, we are what Freud calls polymorphously perverse. Do you know what that means? That means we will poke at anything that we can poke at. That's what that means. Polymorphously perverse, coined by Freud. But we are called by God to another ideal intended before the fall. And we publicly uphold God's ideal as a standard and vision. Now, second, the posture. The world's problem with Christians has never, ever, ever been our position, I believe. But it's mostly with our disposition, that is, our posture. The Barna Group did a recent survey And uh, this was a pretty extensive survey, actually. And they basically had four categories that everybody who took the survey fell into. And it was a a self, uh, it wasn't a survey about other people. It wasn't a survey about my opinion about you. It It was a survey about my opinion about me. Okay? And these were the four categories. Christ like in action and attitude. Christ like in action, but not in attitude. Christ-like in attitude, but not in action. Christ-like in neither. And they asked a series of questions that were designed to uh, encourage me to answer honestly 
that would result in an honest survey. And guess what the results were? The far majority tested in the fourth quadrant, which is Christ-like in neither. We don't act like Christians, and we don't sound like Christians either. Self-identification. If this is what we think about ourselves, were we to be honest, what do you suppose the world thinks about you? What do you think an average homosexual man thinks about the Christian church? What is the message that is going before us? What is the image that they have of me as a preacher? It is no wonder the strangers that I'm sitting next to on airplanes turn away from me and immediately fall asleep for fear of having to have a conversation with a professional Christian. In Paul's letter here in this section, he goes back and forth between the past and present tense. And the commentators indicate that what this means is that Paul is not talking about a past event only, but he's talking about something that happened in the past, but is currently still true. He is also indicating that he's describing things that happened and happened on a macro level, but also happened in a micro level. It means that the them that we think Paul is writing about is also us, the readers of this letter. Verse 29 to 31, Paul lists a random list, and this is what commentators also point out, there is no logical uh, way to organize this list of 21 items. Shall we read it? Filled with unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, oh my goodness, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Now I wish this sermon were just about homosexuality, because then I'm off the hook. But what, about, what do I do with this list of 21 things? And so he says in chapter 2, verse 1, you notice it begins with the word, therefore. That means Paul is about to tell you the reason why he wrote everything he just did. Therefore, you are without excuse, he says. Oh, what, when did I get roped into this? I thought we were, we were talking about them. Paul says, no, 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 that was a trap I was laying for you. It's like when, when the prophet comes to King David and says, you are the man. You are without excuse. Here's what this means. It means that every position is partial in that it's just part of the story. It also means that every position is partial in that it's subjective. That there's a complexity and a hiddenness of the motives and that there is embedded in this position a conflict of interest. My position on homosexuality, as much of a position as I have to take publicly, is full of holes. And I have to acknowledge that as a Christian minister. And that's what this, the point that Paul is trying to make is. 
The position that I hold about homosexuality is just part of the story because of the list of 21 other things. And my position on homosexuality is just partial because it's subjective. I have a need, a personally invested need for it to be just about homosexuality. I need to hide behind my position because I have other things. I'm a magician. I want to, you know, point your attention towards this topic so that you don't see these other 21 things about me. And even homosexuality itself is a spectrum more than it is a position. So, therefore, Paul says, you are without excuse. There is hypocrisy and denial in our judgment. And we don't want to acknowledge that sexuality in general is royally screwed up in every way along with everything and everyone else. That sexuality is at best a metaphor. And we're messing it up. We don't understand the metaphorical nature and purpose and meaning of sexuality. And heterosexuals, along with everybody else, heterosexual Christians, along with everyone else, we're screwing it up, pun intended. There was a, um, a study, it's a violent, study on violence, and the most famous of these study on violences took place in Stanford University. It's famously called the Stanford Prison Experiment. And I recently uh, studied uh, Philip Zimbard, Zimbardo's uh, study of it. And uh, I think actually he did a TED Talk as well, and then NPR picked, picked up on it, and they did a study on it as well. Um, but here's what they did. They took a bunch of Stanford students... And they created this false prison system. And, and, um, and uh, they had some students that were assigned to be prisoners and some students who were supposed to be guards. And they, be, they gave the standard rules that guards and prisoners have. And they can do anything that's required to maintain order in the prison system except for physically hurting each other. And then so um, the study goes, in just... A few short days, days, days. The experiment started to uh, spiral out of control in that the prisoners became victims and the guards became abusers with their words. They became uh, um, verbally abusive, verbally, emotionally, psychologically abusive. And guess what was the very first way that they became abusive? Sexually, they began, they began to degrade the prisoners. The guards began to degrade the prisoners sexually, verbally. The very first thing to go, and uh, Philip is uh, quick to point out that he was fascinated by this truth. And all the other violent studies show the very first area that becomes the area of abuse is the area of sexuality. The horror, the horror. This is the heart of darkness. Why does humanity degenerate so quickly? And why is the primary arena of degeneration our sexuality? 
Because it has to do with worship. Because that was our first sin. Our refusal to worship God and to give him thanks and to acknowledge him as our creator. Salvation, my friends, is not just about them, but it's primarily about me. Romans 3.9, Paul is asking the question, are you better? Are you better? You answer that for yourself. Are you better? Are you a better human being than anybody that you judge or condemn? If Jesus leaves the 99 to go find the one that is lost, what is he saying about the 99? Do you know when Jesus was telling that story, that was a commentary he was making towards the 99? That wasn't a conversation he was having with the one. What is he saying about the 99? And if you want to strain gnats, he says you're going to swallow camels. Your position that you hold so dearly, my position that I will publicly proclaim, for as long as I'm a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, is just talking about where the cross is in the dirt. But the posture really is about why he's up on the cross in the first place. Because of his disposition, posture of love. Sadly, the reality is our reputation as a group is not about our posture of love, but it is about our position What should lead the way is our posture. Our reputation, the story that people tell about Christians should be that of our love. Part of the problem, I think, is that we have perpetuated the problem. If you believe so much with your heart that homosexuality is what we call a sin, and it is a special sin, and we need to be standing on guard against homosexuality and all that, then why would you aggravate the problem? If any member of your family were hurting, is that what you would do to help them in their process? Is that what would win them to the very resource that you claim they need the most? I think we have aggravated the symptoms, if we can call it that, through suppression, through hatred, through insecurity, and through ignorance. I think hurt people have hurt people. And your ability to hurt people is only matched by your own woundedness. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you. An immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. That someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed will be removed from your midst. If you want to help somebody, the very first weapon you fire are your tear glands. You cry, you mourn. And Paul is saying, how can you you do these things? You have become arrogant. Instead, you should mourn. Mourn. Cry. Where are your tears, Christians? Tears come not from your position, but from your posture. And I think tears are the weapons of the gospel. Now, let me apply in three areas and then we will end. I have a couple of minutes left. Confession. 
The first is confession and application. There's a book called The Martian Chronicles by Rad Bradbury. Anybody read that? Very famous book. Uh, in the end of the story, in the, in the book, there's a human family, if you remember. They uh, escape to the planet Mars because there's impending nuclear war. Remember this? And they look into the canals of their new home, the planet Mars, and they're fully expecting to see Martians. Right? And they succeed because what do they see? They see their own reflections in the canals. They are now the Martians. This is their new home. Christians, this is my first application point to you. Find something to confess every day. Look and see your own reflections. There is no them. There is only me. Lead with your confessions. May you be a confessional Christian if you must be one. Second application, apology. On behalf of my fellow Christians and the Christian church and Christian leaders, I want to apologize to all the homosexuals in this room. I want to say I'm sorry. We have really, really messed it up. We have not earned your trust. We have not been safe people. We have not been the resource to you that we claim we are. We claim to be healers. We claim to be bearers of the torch. We claim to be helpful. And yet we have pushed you away. We have done everything to earn and deserve your repulsion of us. And I'm really, really sorry. We apologize from the bottom of our hearts. And we hope we can do whatever it takes to win your trust back. Jesus was a safe and holy person. We have not been safe and holy. We have not been safe because we have not been holy. We've been trying to be holy by our own strength and have been repulsive and insecure as a result. We have not believed the gospel of grace, but we have trusted in our own works and our own morality. And we have repulsed you. And we apologize for that. We have not accurately represented the Jesus we claim to follow. I think if I'm honest about why I have planted six churches and now stand before you as a pastor of an established church, it's because of my own need to create a community that's safe and holy, a community that is at once safe and at once holy, just like Jesus was. We know that if Jesus was in our midst, all of the the least, the last and the lost, the marginalized and the insignificant and the repulsive of society would be drawn to him because they were in Jesus' time. And the church has not done that very well. Third, vision. I want to give you a vision for what we can be. I think humility and confidence go hand in hand, but it primarily flows out of self-leadership. And so I hope we can be a church where we're leading ourselves well. Stop worrying about everybody else. Worry about your own soul. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own sexuality. Suppression, according to Paul, Romans chapter 1, never helps. 
confess. Bring things to the light. Work it out. Lead yourself. Second, see yourself and others clearly through God's eyes. That is through tears. If my one of my kids were ever struggling through something, but you're not weeping because of your love for them, I don't want you to lay a finger on my kid. Get away from my kid. Because unless you have the heart of love and the eyes that are glistening with tears, you, do not, you are not qualified to be able to see objectively enough to help my kid. And if you have loved anyone, you know this. Love is the primary requirement. See yourself and others through God's eyes of tears. Third, I hope we can be a church where we are secure enough to lead with our posture because we are centered by an integrous position. Part of the problem with Christian positions is that it's full of holes. It doesn't have the integrity that comes from humility and confidence, from safety and holiness, from scientific research, from historical understanding. We just herald our position as if the position itself is sufficient. It's the understanding of the position that allows you to have the kind of posture that it takes to save the world that you claim to love by holding a position in the first place. What does it mean for our church to be safe and holy? I think it means to be vulnerable. It means to understand the reality of process and the willingness to engage in the messiness of life. In conclusion, I say I don't understand homosexuality very well, but I do understand pain, rejection, condemnation. I understand judgment. I understand belittlement and demeaning and fear and defensiveness. I understand rage and hopelessness and isolation and sadness and grief and hurt and insecurity and loneliness. The sword of the gospel of Jesus Christ is able to cut and discern. It is able to save even me. The call of the gospel is death with Christ for the sake of others. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, we acknowledge that our position is empty unless it is filled with the posture of love. And so do that work in us. And I pray that we can be a bright, shining resource to all those we claim are in darkness. But most of all, you know, God, you know that we are in darkness and we need your light. So help us first that we might help others. Take the log out of our own eyes that we might help the splinters of society. Lord, have mercy on us. Have mercy on our souls. We pray in Jesus' name.